0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And since last week, we've received donations from three fellow saloners. Marie and Barry, uh, who are dear friends of my wife and I, and uh, from Dan O., who comes from a town not far from uh, where I lived while in high school. And if it wasn't for the fact that Dan is 10 years younger than I am, I'd say that, well, we probably played football and basketball against one another. Anyway, it's uh, always good to hear from another Midwesterner, uh, as is uh, Barry as well, now that I think of it. Anyway, a big thank you to our donors and also to our fellow saloners who aren't in a position to make a financial contribution to the salon, but who are regularly telling their friends about these podcasts. We're all in this together, you know, so uh, thank you all very much. Now, have you ever wondered what Terence McKenna would say about some of the things that are taking place in the quagmire of U.S. politics today? I know that I have, uh, and in just a moment we're going to hear his thoughts about what he calls the social virus of political correctness, (laughs) which uh, just happens to be in the news these days. This talk uh, is the first of a series of what he called in-house get-togethers with the staff at the Esselen Institute. And there are seven tapes in this series, and to my knowledge, uh, they were never formally produced or sold. And this introductory talk that I'm about to play was given on August 4th in 1998. And for those of you who have been to Esalen and would like to picture Terrence and his little crowd, well, this talk was given on the lawn of the Big House, uh, where those gathered could look out at the Pacific while listening to the Bard McKenna, way out there on the edge of the West. As far
1: as what these things are about, they're much easier for me and more interesting for people if they're driven by the agendas of the, of the people present. I can always lapse into various set pieces and raves, but uh, it's getting harder and harder to do around here because everybody's heard all my shticks. So, um, that's the basic notion. Uh, it'll probably be a shifting population of people, and the lectures, if they're that formalized, probably won't be, uh, particularly sequential or, or linked thematically, uh, I've got different things on my mind, you probably have different things on your mind, and then again, the question part makes it most interesting. We'll begin at 8 every night, and then we'll just go as long as there seems to be something to say. Um, As far as today is concerned, it's completely open. Um, People can say what they would want to hear, or... uh, or ask questions or uh, you know I can extemporize whatever works I don't know what the expectations of the people here are so why don't you tell me and if necessary I'll organize some hideously (laughs) declined process where everyone is forced to say something or you can just grow up And uh, those of you who have something to say, say something, and those who have not, not, um, your choice. (laughs) Jump into the fray, save a friend. Yeah, sure, I can talk about that. Uh, I mean, I've been thinking, I guess, more about my own philosophy, because... uh, I've been, in the past couple of years, had have, have more negative attention than I ever had before. I mean, it wasn't overwhelming, but those of you who are on the novelty list know that there were some fairly ugly catfights over the higher mathematics of the time wave. And uh, and so I got to used to thinking of myself as something which needs to be defended, Um, So that was interesting. Also, I don't know whether it's that I'm getting older or that the society is taking a sort of different developmental turn, but uh, I find lots more of what goes on seems uh, not only idiotic, but sort of personally irritating and confrontative. And so I find myself, at least in my mind, going through a lot of kvetching and grinding about, uh, about the situation in terms of public discourse and the search for truth and understanding. Uh, it's become... Uh well, let me talk about this a little bit in California at any rate and since we're in California I'll talk about it more vehemently because when I've tried this rap in England and in New York City people say we don't have this problem you're talking about uh especially in England and basically so what I've identified is a kind of social virus of political correctness generated either north or south of here a couple of hundred miles and the basic notion is it has become uncool to point out even to yourself that somebody else doesn't make sense uh... and i've talked a bit about this at and i've called it the balkanization of epistemology which is a very fancy phrase for Meaning, you have to show due respect to people who can't tell shit from Shinola. You have to admit that it's a truth, the search for truth is a very uncertain uh, enterprise. And that revelation is on an equal footing with science and that the whole notion of evidence is hideously stifling and legalistic and uh, not to be taken seriously, so forth and so on. So um, I come up against this problem fairly often because uh, a certain portion of my audience, is flakier than I am comfortable with. And so I've had to try and understand how this could happen. My thing consistently for 20 years or something has been in tight orbit around uh, psychedelics and the psychedelic experience with special emphasis on experience that it's not a philosophy, it's not a revelation, it's not a lineage, it's not a teaching, it's an experience. And how you obtain it is quite simple, you know, you ingest a plant or a substance. It's not about, uh, you know, dietary prohibitions, celibacy, obedience, constancy, moral worth, none of these things enter into it. It was this very simple method. And I always, the reason I was so keen for it was because when I was growing up and in my youth, I was very interested in the idea of the paranormal, of the miraculous, uh, and I remember one of the early things I read was Rockcliffe's eight, 19th century study, Illusions, Extraordinary Illusions and Delusions of the Supernatural and the Occult, which lists, you know, ectoplasm, crowd hysteria, mesmerism, Ouija boards, all these things are discussed in their turn. Uh, but my, so my fascination was with the weird and the, fringy and even the occult and the frankly magical and the heretical, but my method was always scientific. It was never to believe these things Uh, unquestioningly. It was always to take A.E. Waite's book of ceremonial magic, and you know, collect rosemary and steal the proper instruments from the village rectory, and uh, you know, save the host and then attempt the conjuration. And then, if it fails, put a check mark after uh, medieval ceremonial <laughs> magic. Uh, you know, does not compute, and and move on. So I, I grew up in a small town in a very isolated situation, and I and nothing about this seemed strange to me. This method of approaching uh, the occult, and I read J. B. Rhine, and that was all about statistically gathering data and so forth and so on. Well, somewhere along the line, and some people interestingly have suggested both to me personally and then I've seen it in print that these very substances and plants that I'm so keen for have somehow had on the mass mind the effect of uh, generally softening heads so that uh, epistemological rigor has broken down and rules of evidence have been compromised and now every half-baked intuition can come flooding through and as long as it has its coterie of bleating adherence it will take its place uh, you know in the great yellow pages of American revelation as part of the spiritual smorgasbord well I, I abhor this argument because the whole point with psychedelic was to cut through the programming and the Kant and the propaganda of culture to true truth, real reality. Uh, not to just in- initiate an era of intellectual permissiveness where uh, uh, everything in the spiritual marketplace was placed on the same pedestal as Euclidean geometry. And, and in a way, this is what has happened. So I'm interested to understand what went wrong. And, you know, I don't know if anything can be fixed anymore, but it can be fixed in my own mind if I understand it. Um, it, It began this devolution of the discursive environment with a healthy skepticism of science. There had been too much science. And uh, science had thrown out too many babies with the bathwater. I'm talking approximately the time of the birth of the human potential movement and the coming on of LSD and all that. What was happening in science at the same time was people were building atom bombs or they were propounding behavioral psychology, ratomorphic theories of behavior. It was a great era of the triumph of reductionism and so forth. And So a whole lot of people wrote deconstructive books and essays about science and trying to link it back to the spiritual and successfully, in my opinion. Probably the most dramatic of these books was Thomas Kuhn's book, Probably most of you have read the, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he offers the, for the time, startling proposal and then proves it that modern science is actually based on very woo woo revelations, spiritual encounters with aliens, people who had uh, visionary dreams, and so forth, uh, and that the story science likes to tell about how it does its work which is you take your colleagues earlier work you carefully check the facts you perform experiments you advance the theory by incrementally advancing hypotheses which you carefully test and that's the story you tell once you have the beast dead in the boat But the real experience of dragging one of these things out of the water is much more dramatic and hair-raising and chance-taking. And For instance, we know now that Gregor Mendel, when he did his experiments with sweet peas, that if he had actually been rigorous in his observations, he would have missed the laws of genetic segregation. The sweet pea doesn't... uh, Quite perform in the theoretical way that Mendel's notebooks seem to show. What he did was he rounded up and rounded down because he already had an intuition that the recessive gene would have uh, a certain mathematical characteristic. So he played with the data data to make the theory right. Well, then it turned out it was right, uh, but rarely can you play this game and get away with it the way he did so as acid came on in the early late 50s and early 60s and as science reached its most uh, reductionist and obnoxious uh, crescendo there was this healthy skepticism of science it had gone too far Now you know it was producing atom bombs but not giving us a social psychology or a or a theory of psychoanalysis or anything like that that we could really uh, use. That seemed to be coming from the underground. Uh, What was wrong with uh, science? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just as an aside, if you're interested in it, I think it had become too dependent on... um, On probability theory, on statistical analysis, on certain assumptions in the way it did its mathematical bookkeeping, uh, were not apparent to the second and third generation of scientists working in this manner. So when I'm confronted with a historical phenomenon that seems like it's gone off the tracks or gotten into the ditch, my method is to go back through its history to try and find the last sane moment that it knew and then make judgments based on that. Well, I think if you analyze science in that way, uh, the, last, the, the basic idea of science before the rise of probability theory is science is the idea that human beings can uh, understand nature. Not relate to it, not ritualize it, not worship it, but intellectually encompass it somehow through modeling. And um, and the when you try to do this, a rule that quickly forces its uh, limitations upon you is, uh, and it's very basic to the Western mind, is this thing formulated as Occam's Razor. William of Occam was a 14th century philosopher who founded a point of view called nominalism. But the thing that Occam said that is germane for this argument is, he said it in Latin, and there's different arguments about exactly what he said, but here's the boil down. What he said was, Hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity. Or, to further boil it down, keep it simple, stupid. Or, halfway between these two points, in all situations the simplest adequate explanation should be preferred. So see what this is, it's also sometimes called the principle of parsimony parsimony being the simplest and most elegant way of doing something so it's the principle of parsimony that the simplest adequate explanation should always be preferred this is a great idea I don't think you will get into trouble with this idea and to sort of close the loop generated by Jim's questions uh, this is where the reaction to science has gone wrong. The principle of parsimony is now lo- no longer now intuitively grasped by other people. In other words, when you sit down at the table in the dining room to talk about the universe with people, you cannot be sure that... If you mentioned this idea, whether you called it Occam's Razor, the principle of parsimony, or you just explained what it meant, you can't be sure that it would have any intellectual force with people. Somehow people have moved into a Baroque or even Rococo phase in their model building, and they have no problem uh, uh, adding on incredibly improbable and illogical uh, bells, whistles, cues, filigrees, fleur-de-lis, paisleys, and what have you, uh, to their thinking. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a problem. It's a problem for everybody in society. What puzzles me is it offends me that psychedelic people are um, susceptible to this. Because it seems to me we're the last people who should be susceptible to this. We have no need of spiritual illusions because we have access to spiritual realities through the substances and the plants. So why should we, least of all, why should we buy in to all these unanchored, woolly, fluff-headed ideas that are being pushed in the spiritual marketplace. The only answer I've been able to come up with is simple proximity. That by the rest of society, we have been lumped in with these people, and they move freely among us, uh, easily detected, but rarely ostracized. Uh, Our own tolerance, has become uh, our weakness. Uh, and it's this weird political correctness where people do not say what you just said is preposterous. It makes no sense whatsoever. This is just thought so ungenerous of spirit to point out that someone makes no sense at all. It's that their feelings, I think. Have become preeminent in the value system it's more important not to hurt someone's feelings than to let them walk around with a head full of crap so uh, having identified this as a problem and having never been terribly sensitive to other people's feelings (laughs) anyway (laughs) i was a good person (laughs) to uh, send to the ramp The, the, but the consequences of this are not good. In other words, if we really want to build a, um, a sane and caring world, we can't do it uh, based on illusion, uh, unanchored thinking, and just plain silliness. It's very hard. You know, the world is in the hands of very hard-eyed and practical people. They have learned that by owning the planet, you can make money. They are not going to easily step away from the wheel. They are going to have to be presented with an overwhelming argument or circumstance for them to go quietly into retirement. And by vitiating the thrust of critical thinking with this cult of generalized political correctness uh, we weaken our case for uh, a new way of, of running the world in fact it be our, our entire political phenomenon becomes a case against relinquishing the relinquishing of power by the old order so you know i've tried to put this in a very general form without naming names or goring anybody's particular ox because i don't think it's a good idea to then move on to the inquisition and drag each practitioner forward and uh you know with fire and lance uh, separate the the dross from the gold But in a sense, I think this needs to be done uh, internally. Uh, And it's a strange thing. It's very complicated. Uh, Part of the problem, and we've talked about this in the past, is that the media is a system for amplifying the trivial and the absurd. In other words, man goes to work, does superb job, returns home. This is no headline. No one is interested in this. What people, but, but, you know, alien mom nine gives birth to dead Christ. Now this is extraordinary. And resonates in many people's minds. And, uh, you know, if there were corroborative evidence, it would move around the planet as a hysteria within hours. Uh, as intellectuals, which I, by intellectuals, I mean people who can read, uh, as intellectuals, we are guiltier than most people in participating in tolerating this kind of, uh, of a system, because it it literally is a system of uh, bread and circuses. You know, uh, energy follows attention. Therefore, if attention's focus can be trivialized, uh, those who work in the background of social consciousness are completely unobserved. Uh, So, uh, and what can be done about the media, Why does the media behave this way and what can be done about it? Well, the media amplifies trivia because trivia sells. And ultimately, you know, it's hard not to reason back to one's own guilt. Ultimately, it is the childishness and self-indulgence and muddle-headedness of each one of us that allows this entire system to come into existence, this system of com- commodity fetishization, uh, uh, objectification of social value, uh, the marketplace of ideas, the idea that everything can be put into an economic model uh, and value, and then our appetite for... For uh, uh, pop culture, which is essentially uh, an arena of uh, propagandization, brainwashing, and brand consciousness establishing. And it's weird how everyone, and I include myself in this, uh, issues themselves a, a, an exception to the felt moral obligation to have nothing to do with this stuff. I mean, you know, you can be sitting with people of great intellect and uh, intelligence and then somebody will say something so absolutely bonehead lame that the entire illusion of any intellectual class or a class of exclusive understanding completely dissolves. You know, as someone tears off to a sale at Barney's or something like that. Uh, there's, there's no end to it. And then in the ideological zone, which I keep being drawn back to talk about, but which I sense is the dangerous area, in the ideological zone there's just all kinds of unexamined shoddy intellectual goods on the market. Rupert and I, Rupert Sheldrake was here a few weeks ago helping launch a new book that we wrote with Ralph Abraham. We were talking about this, and he said what we need to do is establish an ideological consumer report where you would publish each month and you would analyze these ideologies in columns, and one of the columns would be requires any special conditions. And so, for instance, if a theory required a unobserved 12th planet, you would put that in the column. Then you would say, evidence of special condition, none. And then you would move on, and by this way you would rate, and then people could buy in the intellectual uh, marketplace with a little more confidence. Of course, this is a parody, it's a satire. What is it a parody of? It's a parody of people's inability to perform this function for themselves. The, the last time I was here, the discussion turned toward uh, neoteny and neoteny is a biological phenomenon of, of uh, prolonged juvenilization in a species or <laughs> the retention of, the, the technical definition is the retention of uh, adult characteristics into, or of juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And primatologists studying human beings have been at pains to observe that uh, many things about us are infantile when we look at other primates. For instance, our hairlessness. All primates are born hairless, but we alone retain that characteristic throughout most of life. The ratio of our skull to our torso is a fetal ratio in other primates. We retain the fetal ratio throughout life. Well, I what we talked about last time was uh, how culture, evolution has carried this process to a certain level. And then culture seems to step in to put the nails in the coffin to completely neotenize you. And so we have... Uh, You know, uh, 65-year-old men running around in sweatpants and Nike running shoes and everybody having their butt tucked and their tits pumped and all of this. Well, what is this? This is a culture of youth, uh, youth values. Only the youthful body, only the youthful vigor is uh, is worth talking about. And uh, it sells. You know, if you can get people really neurotically twisted around this idea, then instead of life being an unfoldment into wisdom, it's an anxiety-producing fall away from a perfect state of youth, which can only then be approached through dyeing your hair, wearing certain colognes, certain brands of clothes, psychotherapy, yada, 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 all of these things. So, neoteny is what I have identified as the way culture works at us to dumb us down. And I've even sort of reached the conclusion that, you know, nature has a limited repertoire of energy to expend in the evolution of any given species. So once a purpose is achieved, excess energy doesn't flow toward that purpose. Well, it hit me once when, I, after I had a physical and I was buttoning up, my doctor said, uh, you know, in the 19th century, people you, most people your age were dead, which is true. In the, the average age in the 19th century was about 36 to 40 for the American male. I'm 52. A lot of people are outliving their culture. And in, you know, if you're, if you're intelligent and you live past 40, you will outgrow your culture. I mean, some people may do it sooner, but you have to be a complete idiot to just buy in At 55, at 60, at 75, at 80, you know, what are you still going to be doing, Uh, expressing homophobic views, voting Republican, and worrying about the A, B, and Cs of uh, phony reality? I mean, most people get to a place where they just see it's a bunch of crap, you know? Uh, the the scandals are recycled, the philosophical issues are recycled, the technical innovations are recycled. Once you've been through about three cycles of this, you realize that, you know, this is a media-created uh, state of cultural involvement and reciprocal narcissism, only to be assuaged by the expenditure of money, and that you can just walk away from it. It's... Uh, It's unnecessary, and in fact this walking away from it by more and more people I think is a precondition to any kind of reasonable attempt to uh, get the planet on a course where crises begin to diminish rather than be endlessly exacerbated. Uh, the, The values of production, acquisition, reproduction are all uh... faithful to any human enterprise except the short-term success of the marketplace and apparently that is to be the primary maximized value uh, so this is a long answer to the question the short answer is uh... my approach to reality is uh... hands-on and I wouldn't call it scientific, because it's not statistical, but it's realistic. Uh, first of all, nothing is what it appears to be. But on the other hand, uh, very large structures are not likely to come into being unless they quickly achieve their purpose. So in other words, forms of conspiracy theory seem to me over I think the real truth about how reality works is that it's pretty much on automatic. Chaos is the ruling player, chance is cast in the number two role, and the unexpected is in there somewhere. And then, you know, if somebody can organize a conspiracy and keep it running in one direction in the face of all that, well, uh, fine. it's good to talk about this here because Esalen has been you know a place where many very deep new ideas have been generated Uh, revolutions in psychotherapy revolutions in general systems thinking uh... very significant political movements have been advanced from here uh... the whole soviet reassessment and all that but also Esselen has been a source of some of the wackiest and least anchored of uh, of these ideas and and that's fine in the context of the idea that all forms of advocacy should be permitted and i would agree with that but i think that the counter or the reflexive value that must attend that is that all forms of ad- must be fairly criticized. And there needs to be a general, and this is the part that is the itch I keep trying to scratch, there needs to be a general understanding of what constitutes, uh, of what we mean by words like proof, evidence, uh, and testimony. The You know, the law is an interesting, it's interesting to me how the law has been remarkably immune to the general wooliness that has crept into thinking. Uh, it is, if you commit murder, that the greys made you do it is not defensible. The devil made me do it. I mean, maybe it is defensible, but it's a pitiful uh, defense. Uh, people, it may be traumatic for people to testify in front of a grand jury, but on the other hand, if you are, have some evidentiary material related to a crime, uh, you're going to have to uh, talk to the grand jury in the name of uh, the generally established canons of uh, what is good for society. And I think, you know, if, the meth- if those kinds of methods were applied to a lot of so-called paranormal phenomena, abductions, flying saucers, sightings, so forth and so on, they would just melt like the morning dew. It's the, uh, it's the inability to subpoena testimony and explore contradiction that makes this stuff at the second, third, fourth, and fifth retelling seems so compelling and then one other aspect of all this and then we can go on to something else and that is we seem to be very naive about the nature of communication and how ninety five percent or ninety nine percent of what moves around is unsubstantiated rumor based on uninformed opinion i mean you know, we sit here with the assumption that we're all in the same universe, more or less, and that we're all experiencing the same reality, more or less. But this is just a polite fiction. I mean, if if we were to go around this circle and instead of telling your name and your professional occupation, you were uh, asked to explain how a common household device works so for you the television set for you the austerizer for you the thermostat for you the furnace Uh, i think we would largely discover that if anything past the most trivial level it just turns into elves and goblins out (laughs) there Uh, i mean we're hardly different from new guinea highlanders And we call, we think, we understand, everybody's model works for them, even if they think, you know, that it's hemagoblins in your blood that run around carrying oxygen, uh, because they heard it that way in second grade. Uh, so uh, this is sort of a terrifying thought to contemplate that the actual understanding of reality is held in our species as a kind of diffuse cloud of expertise but when you try to tease it out from any given individual in the cloud you you find just just a cartoon is what you actually find you know if you read ulysses james joyce's masterpiece a lot of what's going on in in uh, Leopold Bloom's head as he wanders around Dublin are crack-brained understandings of technical devices, how he thinks the electric tram works, how he thinks about the odds uh, in the horse race, how he thinks about how the sewer works, and it's all uh, absolutely cartoon-like fairy tales. About reality. Well, if we don't understand things as simple as can openers and TV sets, then what is our real grip on phenomena like representative democracy or the healthcare delivery system uh, or the theory of evolution and molecular genetics? Uh, you know, it begins to get pretty, uh, pretty scary out there. So, all of these things taken in stride Um, lead me back to the conclusion that the way to investigate reality is carefully with intellectual consistency seek the weird seek the bizarre seek the edge but understand that uh, uh, you can only rely directly on your own experience, the conclusions you draw from it, and mathematics. And anything which comes down the collective epigenetic telegraph is so shaped by the cultural mind that it, none of it can be trusted. All of it serves hidden agendas of salesmanship, marketing, propagandization, uh, glamorization, fetishization, in other words, nothing can be taken at face value. Nothing is what it seems. And if you move through reality like that, testing as you go, uh, I think you know there's not a great deal of danger of going over the edge. In my own experience of doing that, the only interesting thing I found that transcended the mundane was psychedelics but I'm perfectly willing to admit that one life may not be enough and maybe if I'd gone to Paraguay instead of Nepal or maybe, you know, I would have found something. But I do believe induction, induction, if not prosecuted too far, can be helpful. What do I mean by induction? If you meet 20 bankers and they all are jerks, You may be reasonable in forming the supposition that the 21st banker will be a jerk. You may be wrong, but the force of presupposition uh, is with you. So uh, induction, deduction, and experiential confirmation. What's not a good thing, I think, is buying in on hype or charisma. Hype is when somebody says... uh, Ex-NASA scientist so-and-so says this about pro bono proctologists from nearby star systems making late-night house calls in North America. Uh, when you hear somebody lead with credentials, ex-NASA scientist, I used to feel like I should reach for my revolver. How many ex-NASA scientists are there around with crack-brained ideas? And is this why they're ex-NASA scientists? Because they had to be let go because their belief in 13th planets, uh, higher dimensional gods on the face of Mars and so forth and so on uh, interfered with them doing their job. Anyway, that's the answer to the question with all the footnotes and bells and whistles. As you can tell, I'm mildly agitated about this. And it's, it's a personally troubling thing to me because, uh, well, because as I said, part of my audience is part of the problem. And it's a really weird experience to have someone come up to you after a talk and say, you know, I love your stuff. I, I, there aren't very many people I respect, and I love your stuff, and I also love, and then they name two indictable morons from the land of woo woo, and you think, oh my god, you know, this person has no power of discrimination whatsoever. I am a pearl placed among swine. Either they're wrong or I'm wrong, in any case there's enough wrong around to be disturbing uh because what you want to do it, it is be understood and you know if you're not if if people don't understand what you're saying then they're perfectly happy to you know put a communist a national socialist and a zionist all in the same box and say they're all wonderful and inspiring people and you'd follow any one of them anywhere I mean, what kind of a statement is that? These things are in direct contradiction. And, um, you know, the, the reason I feel like the psychedelic position occupies the philosophical high ground is because it does not require belief. I mean, we like doubters, doubters are the favorite fodder for the psychedelic experience you know those people who say oh you you drug people you don't know what you're talking about you know give me a scotch and soda that carries me about as far as god intended the human mind to go and then you say look great love your attitude here's some dmt smoke it and then see what you think uh With ideologies, you can't do that. You know, ideologies, they start talking about, well, you have to have the gift of faith, or Mama G has to put the whammy on you, or you have to be led forward through the theology of it for a few decades. Well, this just means, you know, that this is crap. Uh, The real is real. It's real. It does not require your participation to be real. On the other hand, a mirage, an illusion, a delusion, you're 50% of, of its lifeblood. Without you, it can't function. Without your credulity, your need, your hope, your weakness, your inability to ontologically parse what's going on. So, that's that. Anybody want to say anything about it? Anybody got anything they want to x-ray? And we'll just shove it into the rhetorical fluoroscope. uh,
0: After our discussion at lunch, I don't want to be on tape anywhere ever (laughs) again.
1: And it's fine to, you know, if you think you've got a case, it's okay to debunk this and reject it. Um, Talk a little more about it. Well, in a sense, that's what we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it, the faith of. It's almost like there are two ways of looking at the world, and they ha, and they come down to whether you think the world is out there, and pers- was there before you got here, and will be there after you depart. And this is essentially the view of science, you know. Whitehead said there are certain stubborn facts, and the world is one of them. Or, if you are, the other philosophical flavor has different names, but it's usually called radical idealism or something like that. And it's the idea that we are making the world moment to moment, somehow it depends on our existence. And of course, Immediately following that assumption is the idea that it we can change it with our mind, which brings up the moral dilemma. then why is it so resistant, or why isn't it the way we want it to be if it's so malleable? why is it so uh, resistant and once you understand you know what philosophy is, I think you you see that these two positions are polar, and that there's a lot to recommend each one, and it's very hard to make a fusion. To... I tend to act as though the world is really there, but I think that ideology is very poisonous, and that we should not, we should not believe anything. It's a a form of metaphysical hubris. It means you really think you're an important cosmic actor. I mean, if you met a termite who wanted to tell you his beliefs, you would be puzzled why he even bothered. Well, are you so greatly different than this termite in relationship to the cosmic all of it? So beliefs are like... They're forms of culturally endowed paralysis. You know, I believe in the democratic individual. I believe in the resurrection and the life. Well, so what? We don't care. What we want to know is what can we reach through examining the evidence and applying inductive and deductive uh, approaches to it. I, I, you know... We've talked about this before, but some people think that what life is about is looking for the good ideologies. We want good ideologies, not bad ideologies. But I think the history of the 20th century is trying to show us, is shouting to us, in fact, that all ideologies, that the ideology itself is a betrayal of being. Uh, you know, certainly fascism when carried to its logical extremes, seemed quite unappealing. The Holocaust and so forth. How then is it that the countervailing idea which people of moral morally felt obligation were moved toward produced nearly equal if not equal horror? You know, socialism You know, you didn't. I mean, different people died for different reasons, but you had the same thing: camps, secret police, the knock on the door, the uh, godlike bureaucrat, the indomitable state, on and on and on. So it it looks to me like ideology is one of these neonatal behaviors that culture downloads on us. In other words, belief is for kids. It's a fairy tale. Marxism is no different than a belief in the Easter Bunny. Uh, Probability theory is no different than a belief in the Easter Bunny. Everybody needs to get a grip on the uncertainty of the intellectual enterprise. I mean, this is what, if modernism is worth anything, then it should carry us to a sense of the fragileness of knowing. You know, there are no Platonic archetypes. Gödel showed that simple arithmetic is fraught with uncertainty. Things that we thought were so writ in adamantine that they could never be questioned, like the second law of thermodynamics, turns out to be written in sand. It's just somebody's opinion. It applies locally in some cases, sometimes. Uh, So the way to live with a mind in the world with a human mind, in the world is not to believe things. That's childish. It's it's uh, it's uh, undignified. The thing to do is to build models and to call them that. Call it model building. And why? Because the implication is. If you exceed your model, or if the thing you're studying has dimensions your model can't encompass, throw the model out. You don't round up everybody who's against the model and send them to the wall because God revealed the model. Uh, this would be the usual method of uh, of acting. No, then you have provisional, ever-changing uh, relationships to the world. Uh, another way of thinking about this is uh, that what ideology tries to do is create closure. There's something in the human mind. We want to finish the crossword puzzle. We want the good guys to win. We want the equinox to happen against the same pattern of fixed stars. In other words, uh, we want order. Worse than that, we want narrative. But this again is childish. The world is not a bedtime story. It is not a narrative. It does not have white hats and black hats. And so part of this growing up thing or growing beyond culture or de neotinizing one's psyche is to accept uh, lack of closure you know that it, it it doesn't come to an end it never makes sense there is never the moment of resolution we want it we want it we deserve it but it ain't in the cards everything always transmutes itself uh, and and uh, opens up new avenues of possibility so learning to live without closure and I think this is very hard for people you know I think and and a lot of decent impulses serve this and tend to make people more neurotic for example uh, relationship anxiety people want stable relationships well, they might as well wish for a silent ocean, you know. All wishing for stable relationships brings you is further anxiety about your obviously unstable relationship. Uh, people want uh, answers, uh, you know, say, well, I, I believe this and that, I believe in reincarnation. So then that settles it. That means you don't believe in a whole bunch of other things. You but, find the security yes, yes, it makes the world so simple. But y- you can make the world so simple, you can just tile over every open question with a dogmatic position. And then when you've entirely done this, you're so ossified, we can just toss you in a hole and <laughs> bury you, and uh, uh, you will then have achieved this closure that you were so frantic to create in life that's the that wonderful line from the movie hud where he says uh, the only peace you ever know is when they lower the box well you might as well get used to that and if that's your idea of where you want to go well i don't know it's not my idea of where i want to go you know that place in andrew marvel's poem to his coy mistress where he says the grave's a lovely private place but none do there i think embrace always at my back i hear time's winged chariot hurrying near so get your bloomers off and get over here (laughs) a a paraphrase admitted but that was thought Uh, Yeah, living with lack of closure, and, uh, you know, I've been trying to do this, and it's a acquired taste. Uh, it's not easy, but it's sort of like doing, eating bran muffins once a day, or doing your calisthenics or something. It's a, it's a healthy thing to do, which takes an effort, and, uh, you know... I recommend it, simply because I think it makes it easier to, to, to laugh, to groove with what's going on. I mean, things become much more comical once you have totally rejected culture, and then you just see what a crazy game it is, and, and watch ordinary people with the fascination you normally reserve for television sitcoms. I mean, they are living television it comes they're acting out Seinfeld for you better than Seinfeld ever could Uh, the conversations in the bath are a good place to (laughs) begin I mean how people deliver these lines with a straight face I I do not know but I thank them for it (laughs) how do I deliver my lines with a straight face I don't know either well it's more like a not thought-out conspiracy I mean, I think what's happening is, uh, you know, I've always said that what psychedelics do, and to some degree all drugs, but psychedelics are the most dramatic, is they dissolve boundaries. Well, cultures and governments are totally, and they sell boundaries. Boundary consciousness is what they're all about. Our class, our group, our fatherland, motherland, our abhorgent lineage, our noble race. This is all the... Rhetoric of nationalism, and uh, and so governments, whether a socialist state, an industrial democracy, a theocratic state, they can all get together on one proposition: the drugs are just terrible, terrible things because they erode loyalty to the myth, the the societal myth. That's one reason of pretty abstract social engineering reason and the other reason is for at least the past 500 years drugs by different names but drugs have been the one of the largest money earners ever brought into the marketplace where is the CIA going to get a quick billion dollars or two off budget if they have a sudden need to topple an unfriendly Middle Eastern government well it's called taking a flyer on drugs Uh, it's very clear that in the 60's China white heroin was used as a as a social engineering drug in the American ghettos because every time you let in a lot of heroin, the political rhetoric in the ghetto fell to a murmur it was it was directly related to how loaded people were on these completely dulling sedative drugs well then when the geopolitical game slipped from the control of the u.s in one area of the world and we were run into the ocean in Vietnam suddenly the world heroin supply was in the hands of the imams in in Iran and the brown tar Iranian heroin uh, became a drag on the market and suddenly cocaine became the chic drug in the American ghetto and that was because the CIA could just open certain taps and close other taps and bring uh, this stuff in and it made them a lot of money. I can remember, you know, there was a period uh, in the in the mid 70s to mid 80s where hashish just basically disappeared from the underground market. It was unknown uh, in quantity, and then when the Mujahideen began to struggle against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, suddenly you could get uh, 100 kilo lots of hash un Unbroken from how it's sold in the markets in Peshawar. So you could see it had not been concealed in any ordinary method. No, it had been drawn up to Pier 9 in San Francisco and unloaded with forklift trucks because the CIA wanted the Mujahideen to have a bank account so they could pay for weaponry, and they knew that hash wasn't a problem anyway.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I say anything else, uh, well, I've got to ask if you are as impressed as I always am when right in the middle of a long, extemporaneous answer to some question that Terence can, uh, well, right out of the blue, begin quoting some obscure, uh, at least to me, obscure poem. I wouldn't be so impressed if Terence had known the night before what questions were going to be asked and was able to prepare his answers, but to just jump into a poem right along with his regular train of thought, well, that simply blows me away. What a wonderful mind he had. Now is it just me, or did Terence sound like he was getting a little pissed off here about fuzzy-headed thinkers? While there aren't many examples of it in these talks of his, there were a couple of times when I saw him go on a, well, a rather, rather angry rant about something or other. And in my opinion, at times like that, he wasn't somebody that you wanted to get into an argument with. <laughs> but those were very rare occasions, and uh, most of the time he came across as a really nice guy. For me, however, one of the most important things that Terrence said in this talk was that we should just get used to the fact that there is never going to be any closure in our lives. Let me illustrate that with a little example. For just a minute here, uh, no matter what your current political belief may be, put yourself in the mind of uh, somebody who, about a year ago, would have been identified as a Bernie bro. In other words, a uh, Bernie Sanders kind of person politically. Now take that mindset back to the days of Little Bush and the war that he launched on Iraq. Then think how grand you thought it would be one day to just get some closure about what was going on in the White House. Now think of the Obama years and his drone attacks on women, children and old people and think about how much we wanted closure from that insane behavior. Now we've got Trump, and uh, we sure do hope that four years from now, there'll be some kind of closure on the craziness that's oozing out of the Oval Office these days. Well, uh, it just isn't going to happen, my friends. Just like you aren't going to permanently lose weight, and you aren't going to begin to exercise regularly. (laughs) Well, maybe you can pull one of those things off, but when it comes to human history, we are never going to come to a point where somebody says, The End. One day, uh, we'll each have our own personal closure in this life, but well, that's not going to happen until we take our last breaths. So, I don't know about you, but I'm not looking for closure anytime soon. Now, before I go, there is one more thing that I want to let you know about. As you know, uh, for those who want to poke around in some forums and exchange ideas with other fellow saloners, you can go to psychedelicsalon.com and click on the forums link at the top of the page. From there, if you go to the forums listing, you'll find a post labeled This Week in Psychedelics. And this is an ongoing thread that's posted by fellow saloner David Wilder, and he's been updating it for us each week for over a year now. Uh, Here's how he introduced this series of posts, and I quote, I have been writing a This Week in Psychedelics column on my website, Think Wilder, and on Reality Sandwich since June of 2015 and I wanted to begin sharing my work with the Psychedelic Salon Forum community. Each week, I collect links to articles from the mass media that are related to psychedelics, and some other psychoactives that are not classified as psychedelic. And I compile them into a comprehensive list in my column. It has been pretty interesting for me, as someone who likes to follow psychedelic news quite closely to see how the mass media covers the topic... Please note that I make it a point to include all articles that I find, whether they present accurate information or not, and also that do not frame psychedelics in a positive light. End quote. David then posts several links to his various columns in this first post, and after that, each week he provides a very brief summary of what's new, along with a direct link to that week's news. This is a really amazing source of information. And it's particularly valuable uh, as a resource for writers and reporters, uh, not to mention people like you and me, who just have an interest in these matters. So check out David's work if you get a chance, and I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.